Thank you for tuning in to Far Better, where we look to be pleasing to God in this life, so our eternity is far better. I'm your host, Michael Clark, and with me again is Devin Dean. Devin, it's good to have you back on the program. Good to be back with you, Michael. We've been talking about sorrow, and we asked the questions in the last episode of whether or not we thought the world was generally happy or sad. What is so different about the way a Christian handles sorrow? Is it wrong to be sorrowful? And who in the Bible experienced sorrow? And it was a great discussion. If you haven't heard that episode yet, go ahead and back out of this one and go and check that one out because this is part two, and you might hear some things that we are going to build upon from the first one. So there'll be a link in the podcast area that you can go back and find it, and we're going to now begin with part two. So, Devin, what advice can we give to those who are dealing with sorrow? You know, Michael, thinking about that, there's there's tons. We could encourage them to read the Bible, but I want to break it down. Three points. Uh, we ought to have this advice. Number one, remember, sorrow is a part of life. Mm-hmm. It's going to happen. That That's a very important one. Uh, number two, it's sort of like that one, but it's remember that all face sorrow. There's no one that hasn't. We talked about it in the last episode. Even God has faced the sorrow, and he gives us a great example of how to get through it. And then number three, the, the, just to keep it simple advice, I would say remember Jesus lived with sorrow. Right. And, and so those real simple three things, remember, it's there. Remember, everyone faces it. You're not alone. And remember that even Jesus, our Savior, faced that sorrow. Yeah, Paul would say in 1 Corinthians 11, 1, imitate me as I imitate Christ. And that tells me that the way that Christ lived his life is how I ought to live, which means when sorrow comes... I need to try to handle it the same way Christ did. And anytime I see in the Bible Jesus facing sorrow, he handled it in such a way where he either prayed to the Father or he corrected it and did not allow the sorrow to consume him. And like you mentioned in the last episode, at any point when the mob came to the time he finally died, Jesus could have decided this is enough. But he allowed, and I love that point that you made, he allowed man to nail himself to the cross. He allowed man to kill him. And I've told people in in Christian camps a lot lately over the last few years, I love superhero movies. But if Jesus were to fight every superhero, every major villain that ever had been created, none of them would even come close to him. He could disintegrate them all with just a thought. That's right. You think about the the Avengers with the the Infinity War and Thanos snapping those fingers and half the population of the universe as they saw it disappeared. Jesus on any point in this, God any point in it, as we discussed, even going back to the very beginning, any one of those events, all it would have taken, it's done. That's right. And that's the thing that we talk about. So it, it we kind of answered the question already, but we're going to go ahead and ask it anyway. Did, did Jesus ever experience sorrow? Only a little bit. No, right, actually, right. Uh, <laughs> th- that would be an understatement. Right. Jesus understands sorrow. In fact, uh, think about it. He truly was a man of sorrows. The Bible described him with that even in the Old Testament, Isaiah 53, verses 1 through 3. Uh, Isaiah is asking some questions on, on behalf of the Lord through inspiration when he says, Who has believed our report? Uh, to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he referring to the one to come. He shall grow up before him as a tender plant and as a root out of dry ground. He has no form or comeliness, and when we see him, there's no beauty that we should desire him. And then it goes into that description, and you think about his life. 
He is despised and rejected of men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And we hid, as it were, our faces from him. He was despised, and we did not esteem him. When you read the New Testament for its real value, especially those first four books, the Gospels, the life of Christ, you would should come away with verses 1 through 3 of Isaiah 53 being the great summary. You think about all the sorrow that he, he and suffering that he went through for his creation and for man. I often listen to the Dave Ramsey show, and I hear people call in and they say, my son or my daughter has gotten themselves in, and then they list this great big financial bind. Dave, what can I do to help? And and he sits there and oftentimes says, you can't do anything to help. They have to do something. But it doesn't change the sorrow that that parent feels. And I think about Jesus and his lament over Jerusalem in Matthew 23, beginning in verse 37, where he says, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the one who kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to her, how often I wanted to gather you and your children together like a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, but you were not willing. I wanted you to be a part of me, but you weren't willing. And then you think back to Amos chapter 4 where God has told the children of Israel, I gave you cleanness of teeth. I gave you all, but you didn't return to me. But you did not return to me. So now captivity's coming, and it's your fault. That's right. And, and you think about those the children of Israel, that 70 years they spent they had no one to blame but themselves. They, they'd had a great God. As we think about what Jesus would do here in a moment, they had a great God who had, had already created the world for them, had, had taken and created a special nation through captivity in Egypt, had already brought them out of there with the ten plagues, the crossing of the Red Sea, the capturing of Jericho, the rest of the conquest of the land, had given them all those things. That's what Amos was describing and yet they got down to this point, and God said, even with all that, you're doing this. I've got to send you into captivity again. They spend 70 years there, and then they're released with no fight. You think about that, that some king just gets up one day and says, hey, you want to go home? Go home. What a great way that God had planned out, and he sent them home so they'd be there to bring Jesus into the world. And you mentioned the one about him sorrowing over his nation, but think about some of the other sorrow that we can mix with that, that, that he suffered from hunger. Right. Uh, Matthew chapter 4, verses right. 1 and 2, that, that first temptation that Satan lays out, Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. There was a specific reason he went out there. And the first thing he did when he went out there, he fasted for 40 days and nights, it says. Then Satan, when it knows, because even the Scriptures say it, Jesus was a man just like we are. If I went 40 days without food, I'd be afterward, I was hungry too. And there's Jesus with that kind of suffering. Uh, he also knew the sorrow, as we discussed last episode, of losing a friend. Uh, John eleven seventeen says that when he came, he found that Lazarus, that friend, had been already in the tomb for four days. Right. And he wept over that. And and even the Jews understood it. We we talked about John eleven thirty five when we read Jesus wept, but Think about what that caused people around him to see when they, when the Jews said, see how he loved him in verse 36. Right. He had that kind of thing, and then he had that, that, that weeping over the nation. Why? Because he knew about the sorrow that it was creating, that what God had wanted to do good to them so often, uh, 
and still wanted to. And he knew that, that in general, that the Jewish nation was going to reject his next piece of sorrow, that of giving of himself, facing death again. Luke twenty two forty four, 44, uh, he's in agony in that garden, praying in those drops of sweat are falling as they were blood to the ground. You see the kind of sorrow he understood. So, yeah, we have a Savior who we cannot say doesn't understand. Right. That, I think, is one of the keys to it. And, and you see that, and I think it's just as true today with, without it being a nation of Israel for the moment, but with mankind in general, that we could apply that Matthew 23, 37 to all of mankind. I, I can see God saying, mankind, mankind, you, you killed the prophets. You've stoned those who were sent to you. I want to gather you together. I want to protect you. I want to say, but you're not willing. You mentioned the captivity that they went through. And I love Daniel's prayer in Daniel 9 where he continuously, and I, I, I challenge people anytime I study this with them, take a pen and underline or circle every time he says we are, you know, in those types of personal words that say we sinned, we messed up. This is why we're in captivity, because we transgress the law. He says in Daniel 9 and verse 5, we've sinned and committed iniquity. We've done wickedly and rebelled, even by departing from your precepts and your judgment. No wonder we're in Babylonian captivity. No wonder we went to Medo-Persian captivity. No wonder this happened to us, because we didn't keep the law. And it's just like Jesus would come back and say, we wanted you to be a part of us and a part of our family, and you rejected us. And I think that's something, when I go back through and I study the Jewish nation, right after they get out of captivity, and they say the very first time a problem comes up, well, let's go back to Egypt. Oh, yeah. It always seems to be their answer. We're going to go back. Or the other answer they give, you go to the New Testament side of this, when they've come out of the the Babylonian captivity, we've never been under bondage to him. Right. Uh, But you see that. But Daniel's a great example. He is saying we over and over in Daniel 9. If you read through the book of Daniel up through Daniel 9, it's basically chronological order. Daniel would have been somewhere around 15-ish in Daniel 1. About 70 years later, almost 70 years, you get over to Daniel 6 and 7, and you see that Daniel in the lion's den. We all know that story. We all see the pictures. Daniel, that that great husky man thrown into the lion's den, though. Daniel was a, an 85 to 90-year-old man, depending on exactly how old he was right. in chapter 1. It's almost 70 years past at this point when he's thrown in that lion's den. And why is he thrown in? Because they couldn't find anything he'd done wrong. Right. All they could find was to take his religion and use it against him to find something wrong. And yet that same man, a very short period of time between the lion's den and chapter 9, and in chapter 9, he's doing what? Yep. We? No, Daniel lived a righteous life. If he was going to be like we see some of the Pharisees in the New Testament, he would have been saying, you know, Lord, I lived a great life. I've done everything you've asked. I know that nation didn't, but, but no, you see a different kind of man in Daniel. We did it. What do we need to do to make it right, God? Yeah, when I make a mistake, only I can do it to fix it. And, you know, I, uh, just going kind of back to the Dave Ramsey show, something he always says that cracks me up is you can wander into debt. You cannot wander out of it. Absolutely. And so you, you sit there and think about that. You can wander into sin. 
But you but can't, you can't wander, wander out of it. Someone's got to save you and redeem you. And that's what Jesus did for us. And when, when the children of Israel were all in on God, they were the greatest world power that the world has ever known. And they never lost in battle when they were all in on God. But when there was doubt, when there was decision of, I don't know that we can do this, such as Joshua and Caleb faced, they never lost. Or they never won, I should say. They never won. Whenever they said, I don't know if we can do this with God, God said, okay, then you'll do it without me, and you won't do it. You think about the ten spies, or the twelve spies, the ten that give the evil report, and Joshua and Caleb, as you remember, who give the two, and the nation sides with the ten. We can't do it. We're grasshoppers in their sight. They're giants. Uh, you see it after Joshua starts to take the land 40 years later. Uh, when, when they go to Jericho and they do what God says, the battle is easy. The very next battle they go in, we're, we're the big mighty power. This is going to be all ours. And because of one man taking a few items that he was told not to take and hiding them, <laughs> the whole nation loses. You see it again when, oh, we're going to go take this little place, and we listen to the lie of those from Gibeah. And and you see this over and over. When we doubted God, God doubted us. Right. We don't literally mean to say it that way. But God said, if you're going to doubt me, go go on, do it on your own, prove it to yourself, is more what God was doing. Right. Letting us learn. I've often asked that question. Uh, we mentioned Adam and Eve last time, and they're a good example to use. Why did God ask Adam what he had done? Right. It has nothing to do with God's knowledge. Just like when we get into the conquest, why did God allow them to lose the battle? He's trying to teach them a lesson. Get them to look at themselves. You're right. not going to do it alone. Right. And that's the great point about sin. We can wander into it. We can wander lost. We can... Lots of things that way. But if you're lost, there's only one way out. You have to find the one way right. to get you out of being lost. That's right. And you, you mentioned Adam. I, I often have thought that too, that God is basically saying, Adam, I want you to look at where you are. I want you to see where you have put yourself by your action. And then Adam's very next decision is, well, God, it's really your fault if you think about it. Oh, yeah. And that, that's such a that slap one. in the face. And it's really what we even do today. Well, God, if you would have just done this, we wouldn't do this. If you would have just done this. And what Jesus says there in Matthew 23, what he, what he experienced in other ways, what God has experienced is, no, if you would just do things I, the way I say, you would have a great life. God is the one that invented the automobile, so to speak. Let's let him drive for a while because we've proven we can't do it perfect, perfectly, but he can. So let him get in the, in the driver's seat and let me ride. And I've often heard a, a great illustration that goes with that, that, that ought to help us when we think about our lives. If we go to that automobile again, God, uh, in this case, will make him the old man. There's an old man and a woman driving in one of the old cars where you had the bench seat. you got to right. have a bench seat. can't do it in these modern cars. She used to sit over there right next to him when they'd be going out initially. But now they're much older. She's over there against that far door, and if that thing doesn't have a good latch, she'll probably fall out. But she looks at him one day and says, we don't sit next to each other like we used to. <laughs> and he just driving along, and he just slowly looked over at her and says, I haven't moved. Right. That's God. Right. He's in that driver's seat. He hasn't moved. That's Who's right. done it? That's right. We think about our end game in life is to 
make it to the afterlife because there is not going to be life forever for us. The Bible tells me that man lived in the Old Testament for a while to 900 years, but then after the flood, man started to get an increasingly shorter lifespan. And now we have the last I looked, it was around 72, 74. It might be a little bigger, might be a little bit smaller, but that was the last I looked was it was between 72 and 74. 74. And so that's the average lifespan, which means when I die... I need to ask the question then, is there sorrow in the afterlife? Well, no. To put it simply, it's one of the wonderful things that Christians know. We asked that in the last episode. How does a Christian handle sorrow? How do they look at it in their lives? Why are they able to get through it? Well, it's part of this because we know we have a Savior who is a man of sorrows, knows how we feel, and the God of heaven has made it clear. One of the great rewards, there won't be any sorrow. You look at Revelation 21. Uh, verses 1 through 4, it gives a description of this this coming of the of heaven when it says, Now I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth were had passed away. Also there was no more sea. Then I, John, saw the holy city, new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from heaven saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is with men. He will dwell with them, and they shall be his people. God himself will be with them and be their God. What's the result of this when you get to verse 4? And God, now think about the comfort we ought to get from this very next word. God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There shall be no more death, nor sorrow, nor crying. There shall be no more pain for the former things have passed away. I find comfort in that in knowing, you know, of course, I've had the discussion before, real men shouldn't cry. I don't right. know. I, I see Jesus, and somebody asks, well, yeah, but Jesus was Jesus. And I'm going, Jesus was a man like right. like us. Right. In fact, I, I think the paintings that men have put out do Jesus injustice. We always see him with the blonde hair and the, the very effeminate face, right. and he looks like he couldn't hurt anyone. But when you read about his background, his father being a carpenter right. in Israel, right. There aren't many trees there. Right. Carpenters were stonemasons more generally. Mm-hmm. Here is a man who for 18 years, from somewhere between the age of 12, when we have a last recording of his youth, up until the point he began his ministry at 30, would have been working in his father's trade, working with stone every day. He would have been a husky man with right. an olive complexion and dark hair. That These paintings get it all wrong. Right. This would have been a rough man. And here he is at his friend's grave weeping. Right. Real men cry. And I look and say, God shall wipe away those tears. It's not some angel. It's not some other person. It's not some God himself says, I'll wipe away your tears. What, 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 what more can a Christian ask for? And when God's able to do that and says there won't be any more sorrow, we ought to be looking forward to that because there's no sorrow there. Those things that have brought sorrow and suffering are going to be gone. You know, I, I think the other side of this, too, is obviously those who don't have God will have the most sorrow that they could ever have in the afterlife and eternity because the rich man and Lazarus both died. But I'm told that one was carried into Abraham's bosom and the other, well, he went to torment. Well, that, that word alone, torment, if I torment you, I'm bringing some type of sorrow to you. Now, maybe I'm teasing you, and I may be tormenting you that way, or maybe that in the case of this, 
you're being licked up by fire. And this man says, I'm tormented in the flames. Please send Lazarus that he would dip his finger and cool my tongue. And then he says, please send someone to my brothers. I don't want them to come and experience this sorrow is essentially right. what he's saying. You think about how, how much pain and sorrow that had to create when thinking that one drop of water on my tongue is going to bring some kind of relief. Right. And then wanting it to go to your brothers and being told that oh, no, they've already got what we would call the Old Testament. They've already got the scriptures. Right. Go read them. That's right. And, and, and you think about the people in the world today, the suffering that we're looking forward to, and we have the greater scriptures, the greater promise, and yet most men are going to do what? Exactly what they want to do. They're going to find it the way that they see fit. But see, that's the thing that I was thinking about when you said that. Life is, is a lot like how we raise our children. If they disobey, we have to punish them. If we don't, they're going to grow up and believe, well, I'm allowed to do this. And I heard a man once say um, in, the, in a courtroom setting, he was on the stand, he was being interviewed, being questioned, and he actually said the following statement. I wish my parents had spanked me growing up and disciplined me more because I really believe that might have given me a respect for authority. I grew up doing whatever I wanted to do, wherever I wanted to go, no matter what my parents said. And when I grew up, when someone told me, no, you can't do that, I did it anyway. And look where it got him. He was still facing judgment. It didn't matter what he had been taught. The truth was still going to be found, and he was facing judgment. It doesn't matter what I'm taught in this life. I'll still face judgment, and the truth is still going to be the truth. Well, it, it, some of the things you said there, think about how important this is. Uh, parents, I think that the worst thing we can do is not carry through with, and I'm going to use the word threats, that we make our right. children. Uh, if you don't stop doing this, I'm going to give you a spanking. Right. And we never give them the spanking. Right. Because then that child learns that you don't really mean what mm -hmm. you say. And if mom and dad don't really mean what they say, then the government doesn't really mean what it says. And if the government doesn't really mean what it says, then God doesn't mean what he says. Right. And so, therefore, you just see that whole picture of what that creates and the kind of loss it's going to bring and the sorrow it brings. Right. Think about the parents who now have a son, as you pointed out. Yeah. He's on the stand. He's probably going to prison. Right. Why? Because I didn't tell him no over some candy bar back when he was five years old. Right. And someone someone might say, well, that seems a little harsh, but you see what we're saying here is when I tell him no for this, and then I say, no, you can't go out and do that, and it's bigger than just taking a candy bar, his exact thought is, no, it's not. I can do that. I can do whatever I want because you're not going to stop me. And, you know, when when uh, my son, for the very first time, we'd been telling him no and he would do it. The very first time, I was asking a bunch of parents, I said, when do you know it is time to spank your child? And I said, not not spank him like I would if he were five, but give him a little swat or a little right. correction. And I heard the same exact response from three different people. When you tell him no, he looks at you and does it anyway. And literally a couple of weeks after I'd heard that from people, I told my son, no, he was going towards a socket. And I don't want him going towards an electrical oh, socket. No, don't want that. And I said, no. And he looked at me, and he started walking toward it. I said, okay, it's time. And so I grabbed him, and I gave him one little swat, and I said, no, sir, you don't do that. 
And if he went back over there, I'd grab him again, and I'd say, no, sir, if you do it again, you're going to get a spanking. To where now, my son, though he's a year and a half, knows a little tiny swat is coming his way if he disobeys. It's not a major swat. We don't beat our children. But what I tell him now is, do you want a spanking? And he perks up and goes, no, sir. You know, he kind of looks at me like, I don't want a spanking. And he flies right. And if he doesn't, he knows what's going to happen. And when we discipline our children, we save them from sorrow. You spare the rod, you spoil the child. child. Right. And, and in fact, that's another point about sorrow that we really haven't made. But sorrow and pain is a positive thing. It can be. Uh, unfortunately, we only look usually at the negative sides of it. Yes, I feel sorrow when I've lost a loved one. Yes, I feel sorrow. But but the perfect point, you're using it with the electric socket. The the one I usually use is if I've got a two-year-old child, because that's about the time they get to really running, uh, that's out in a parking lot and heading for a busy street, I'm going to grab that child of mine, and I'm going to give it a reminder with some pain why? Because there's a greater pain they're going to suffer if I don't. Godly sorrow produces repentance, repentance, leading to salvation, not to be regretted, but the sorrow of the world produces death. When I have godly sorrow, it's a great thing. And David faced godly sorrow when Nathan told him, you're the man. Oh, and yes. David goes, oh, it is me, and I didn't know this, and I, I'd become so calloused in my sin that I didn't feel the sorrow of what I had done. And I need to have sorrow in my life sometimes, as what you just referenced. It produces an absolute opportunity for me to change and to do better. As we kind of close this episode out, I have one more question for you. And it's a question that is interesting because we just said that sorrow can be good. <laughs> um, but shouldn't we be happy over sorrowful since God has blessed us in so many ways? The, the, and it's hard for people to understand this answer, but yes, we should. Right. When when God says you're suffering, you're in sorrow, but be joyful. Right. You're just sitting there confused going, how 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 can I do that? Well, I think the best illustration goes back to the thought of what something's worth. We we did most of this in the first episode. We'll work to obtain this thing called money. For the Christian who understands what God has promised, we can see the following. We we talked about the the size of the house or whatever, but we can only work for a limited period of time. Uh, death is going to come someday, even if we, we didn't retire or something, but we can only work for a limited period of time. And it doesn't matter what I chose to say my hourly wage. I can only earn so much money. And I th- this is one of the ways that it just amazes me what God's really promising. Uh, if I could earn something like salvation... I'd be able to, to earn it by working a certain amount of time for a certain amount of money, and then there'd be a, a certain amount of cost associated with where I'm going. And, and I'd be able to say, hey, I've saved up this much. I get this amount of time up there. The problem is what God has promised is eternal life. It's an unlimited amount. We could work all we want, and you couldn't earn enough to go there. So what is it worth? What is this place that we're talking about worth? God's promise is limitless. It's infinite. As we said, even referencing the credit card commercials, priceless. Right. What is heaven worth to us? And when we put that value, if it's worth that much, when we put that value and you put it against the sorrow we're seeing on this earth, the, the, the value of that sorrow goes down. It's limited in some way against this unlimited promise. 
And that's what the Christian, that's how we can be, I'll use the word joyful for the moment. It, it draws a little bit of connotation between what we think of as happy, the little child who's bouncing in the seat, just right. glorious to have a ball in their hand today right. versus what God's trying to describe. I can have that grief over losing a loved one if I know they're in heaven because I have the joy of knowing one day, we use David as the example with his child that died, I'm going to see them again. I'm going to be with my God. So while I have sorrow and it's going to, to hurt, I can get through that sorrow because I know there's something better. And I'll just mention it because Judas is there. When we let sorrow eat at us right. and we don't take care of it with God, what's the other outcome? Right. And that's these two that we put together. Hebrews tells me to be content with what I have. Be content with such things as you have. One of the things I used to do, and I think a lot of us have done this before, but I was really one of the worst of it. When I went into Best Buy, I had to bring something out. Oh, yes. You know, <laughs> you have to. You you find something and you go, wow, that's only $50. That's affordable, but it's not. You know, and, and you didn't have $50 when you walked in to spend. And you get out, and I've done this a lot. I get into the vehicle, and when I didn't need the item, when I needed the item, I never felt this way. I needed it. I had to go get it. I got it. Right. But when I didn't need the item, I've often sat in the vehicle after I got there and gone, I just wasted 50 bucks. And there's this little bit of sorrow financially that comes in. And I go, I just, I, what I got, I mean, yeah, it, it's a neat product and yeah, I'll use it. But I didn't need it when I walked in. I saw it and I wanted it. And I think sometimes we cloud our judgment with our happiness that we look at God and say, God, I don't need your happiness right now because I've got all this stuff. Stuff. And then we realize, wait a minute, I had exactly what I needed, and I gave that up because I thought this would make me happier. And as we talk about sorrow, there's going to be a lot of sorrow for the Christian even that once had the Lord and lost him. And I imagine, I don't believe hell will actually be hotter degree temperature-wise. I believe it's worse for the Christian who sits there and goes, I didn't have to be here. I could have right. avoided this, but I gave up God for the devil, and boy, my eternity is now a lot more sorrowful because of what I gave up. Do you have any final comments for this episode? I, you know, thinking about that, what you just said, that it's what it's worth. Right. And in the Christian who runs into that problem or the person who runs into this problem, that's what it is. They've lost sight of the value. Right. And I, unfortunately, that's where we need to concentrate ourselves. We talked about it in the first episode. I want to bring that back up. Unfortunately, we try to replace true happiness with artificial, artificial happiness. Right. Will, will money, uh, house, car, drugs, pornography, whatever it was, we try to replace true happiness and happiness that really matters because of the time limit that's put on it. That's right. You, the $50 you spent at, at, right. at Best Buy, and trust me, I understand the same thing. Right. You go into Best Buy or, or Circuit City when it used to exist, right. you got to come out with something. Right. It, do you really need it? Right. I don't need it. What I need is what God offers. Right. Will I, will I go for it? And when the devil offers us something, just like Best Buy has all those products on the shelves, when the devil offers you some form of temptation and says, hey, this will make your life so much better, it will make your life so much happier, we really need to ask ourselves, but will it? And it won't. And when I look at things like that, I know that it won't. And my life is far better off when I live a happy life, being content with the things that God gave me, knowing God provides everything that I need. And when I have that $50 saved up, sure, I'll go buy the item. 
if I know it's not going to hurt me, and if sin will never hurt you, then sure, you can sin. But the problem is it's going to hurt you every time, and therefore we can't do it. I want to thank you, Devin, again for being on the program, and I also want to thank you for listening. And until next time, I hope we all resolve to please God now in this life with the things that we do and following his word so that our eternity is far better.